You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh Lord, teach us your statutes that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that you would capture us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be your people as we journey to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Or in Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to actually try to get all the way through verse 16 today, 11 through 16, so I will uh, go ahead and read those verses. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. You want to follow along, it's page 1003 in your pew Bibles. Uh, But uh, I hope that if you've been listening at all, that you'll realize that there's one overarching theme to the book of Hebrews, and it can be summed up in any number of verses, but we have one this morning. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's the theme of Hebrews. We're journeying to heaven. That's the journey we're on. And the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians in the first century who are having a really hard time of it. Not only are they receiving persecution at the hands of the Romans and the pagan idolatrous worshipers, like what Paul encountered in Ephesus, it's not just people who are worried about the silver trade uh, at the temple of Artemis, uh, but also Jews in their community. Uh, They get it coming and going, as well as individual members of their family. And so it's no wonder that people would uh, just drop it. Every Christian experiences this at some point in their lives, where even if just for a moment you think, I'm going to bail on Christianity. Now, you may not even know what the implications of that are, but the experience that you're having in that moment, whether it's the hardness of life, typically the hardness of life, whatever it is, that experience is going to lead you to say, you know what, I'm going to lump it. And we do this even on a daily basis. I know Jesus says this, but I ain't doing that. Or Jesus encourages me to do this, well, good for Jesus. And it's not often, you know, in a way that that we can even perceive it. You know, when Jesus says, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Well, Jesus didn't have to pay for three 403B college plans. It's very easy for him to say that, right? He's the God and King of the universe. And so we do it in little ways, and we also do it in big ways. And it may be that you, this morning, are a place in your life like these Hebrew Christians who are just at your wit's end, and you're thinking, this is too much. 
You're not going to go out and be antagonistic toward Christianity, but you're just going to basically bail out. And more often than not, I find that the people who bail don't bail because of Jesus. They bail because of other Christians. And that's why the other part of this, you see that in Hebrews 3.12, how is it that you strive to enter that rest? It's heaven. We're going to heaven. I want you to go with me so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's, there's a continual emphasis on, it's not just to the individual of put your faith in Jesus and, and press on. It's exhort one another. Inquire actually how one another are doing in the Christian life. Now, quite frankly, in Birmingham, it's easy to do this. Uh, we can all easily become Christian swans. On top of the water, we look beautiful and graceful, but underneath, we're paddling like crazy just to stay afloat. And the way that we do that is we come to church, which is a really good thing to do. Um, we use Christian language, so when someone says, how's your walk with the Lord going? You say, awesome. I, I get up every morning, and I spend time with the Lord, and my prayer time's been so sweet, and it's been really great. When the reality is, is this morning you slept in, hit the snooze button four or five times, uh, you thought you were going to have a nice breakfast, but you didn't even have time for that, so you ate the donuts you said you weren't going to eat, and then you dashed out the door, and uh, the only prayer uh, that you had was, Jesus, no traffic on 280. Right? That, that was about the only encounter that you had with the living God that morning, or so you think. So he's saying, we need to strive to enter that rest, but we need to be doing this together. We need to be exhorting one another, encouraging one another, which means being honest with one another. Um, what do we say when someone asks, how's your walk with the Lord? Well, one, are we even asking one another that? And what if we were honest? I mean, I, I grew up in a context where people ask that all the time. It was like asking, how are you? I'm fine. But what if somebody asked, how are you? Or how's your walk with the Lord doing? And the response was, not great and nearly non-existent. I mean, you would be thinking, well, actually, I was just kind of asking you to be nice because I've got somewhere to go. But I had not actually planned on engaging you over this answer uh, that I didn't expect you to give. Uh, and very few of us are probably going to do that unless we're asked. I mean, it has to get really bad in our lives for us to reach out to other believers and say, I need help. But here we see in Hebrews 3, leading up to 4, is this whole notion of the hardening of the heart, which doesn't happen all at once. It happens imperceptibly. Which is the problem? And so we end up falling into the same sort of disobedience. Our falling away is because of sin. And again, this falling away is not moral failures. It's apostatizing. It's actually saying and working actively against the Christian faith and just laying it down and saying, I'm done with all that now. It was a phase of life. So that's the overall concern that's summed up in 4.11. But then God gives us two answers to that concern. So what? 
if we're to exhort one another, if we're to spur one another on, how does that happen? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Right? He's using words like deceitfulness, discerning the intentions and thoughts of the heart. In fact, uh, a little Greek lesson, the word, Greek word for discerning is kritikos. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to understand the word kritikos, do you? What's a critic? Now, I don't know why, but in our culture, that's gotten a bad rap. A critic is not someone who's just criticizing. I mean, I don't know if you've ever actually read read critics' columns because sometimes what do critics say? Fantastic. Worst thing that ever happened to Charleston, South Carolina? America's favorite city. (laughs) Right? Worst thing that ever happened to Highlands Bar and Grill? Best restaurant in America. We'll never eat there again. We just want why? Because now, well, because of what the critics have said. So it's not always negative. Uh, It's not always negative. That was me critiquing critics. Uh, But it often is, is negative. And God's word has a way of dissecting us and laying us bare. And I like that. You know, when you go, every time uh, we go to the doctors, the girls ask the same question, am I going to get a shot? And the answer is inevitably yes but I, I don't know. And honestly, I don't look, I, I don't like getting shots. Uh, uh, John Pointer, who recently died, I'm convinced uh, he's my, he was my ENT. I'm convinced he was paid by the shot. Uh, and so if I went in there, I was guaranteed to get, to get at least, well, th- two or three. One was always a vitamin shot. Uh, another one was a, um, was a steroid of some kind. And the third was a, a beefed up antibiotic. And even though I knew it was going to happen, I didn't like it one bit. Even though I knew it was good for me. Now actually, the Word of God is much more invasive than that. I mean, if John Pointer had said, look, you're going to need some sinus surgery, and, um, and so, okay, and then all of a sudden he and the nurse came in and he had a knife and he just started coming after me. I'm, I don't want that. But that's exactly what the Word of God does. It's much more invasive. It's the surgeon's knife, and, and we feel it. And often we feel it intensely. But why is that necessary? Because of the deceitfulness of the human heart. If you want to turn to 1 John, which is page 1021, you may hear some of these wor- phrase, uh, uh, passages might be familiar to you. Um, beginning with um, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now why is John saying these things? Because we don't see them in ourselves and what's happening is people actually are going around saying, I have fellowship with God. And yet they're walking in darkness and they're completely oblivious to it. They're walking around saying, because of Jesus, I now have no sin in my, in my life. But they're what? Deceiving their, themselves. They're actually not able to see themselves as they are. 
Man, we all know this. We never can actually gauge who we are spiritually, emotionally, or even, I think, humanly speaking, uh, ourselves as much as somebody else can for us. I mean, one of my favorite stories is preaching in Buford, and I issued what I thought was a rhetorical question, and I said, after all, how many of you is without sin? And a guy in the back raised his hand. And I said, I said and his wife, I said, what does your wife think? And the place just burst into laughter uh, because the truth of the matter is what? He might have actually thought, I'm doing real well. I'm without sin. But his wife, she's well aware of, of his predicament. And in the same way, we need the Word of God to come into our lives, to open our eyes to who we are. The first thing is, is that there's the diagnosis. Now, if, if John Pointer had just said, I'm going to admit you to the hospital and we're going to operate on you, I'm not interested in that, in that at all. Why? Because I want to know why. I need to know that I have a problem in order to go to the extraordinary measure of having my body operated on. It's not just for fun. Uh, there's a purpose to it. And in the same way, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This avoids carelessness. One of the reasons why we open our communion service with the collect for purity, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, is to avoid carelessness when we come to the table. I don't know about you, but I often come completely thoughtless to the table. I mean, do we actually ever consider what it means to come forward and, and, and come to the table as, as believers, as brothers and sisters, and to really meditate on how great a thing uh, coming forward and, and partaking of uh, Christ's body and blood is? It actually led to the conversion of Charles Simeon when he was a student at Cambridge. It was required of all students. You had to be an Anglican student. That was that, this is actually a new thing. It wasn't until uh, very recently that non-Anglicans could come to the university. And that was only through non-conformist colleges. So there are, all the colleges were basically Anglican with a few exceptions at Cambridge and, and Oxford. Anyway, because of that, Charles Simeon was expected to receive communion at least three times a year. Christmas, Easter, and normally one other time when it happened. Well, Simeon had heretofore avoided that altogether. He'd never taken communion. And the reason why was not really carelessness, although it was that in part, but as he began to think about and with the approaching Easter holiday, where he would have to take communion there at Cambridge, he was overwhelmed with a sense of dread because he realized how unworthy he was to come forward and to receive communion, namely because he was unconverted. And he thought, how can I come to the table and eat and drink judgment upon myself? I, I can't do this. This is, this is just too much. Well, during that process, Charles Simeon became a Christian, and he came forward as a believer and knelt and received the body and blood and, um, and for the first time ever believed and felt that he really was uh, a Christian. Uh, elsewhere, uh, I forget who it was, but one of the great divines of the 19th century wrote, because communion happened so infrequently in the Church of England, wrote that 
one of his earliest memories was of his father shutting himself up in his study not to be disturbed as he prepared that Saturday to receive Holy Communion on Sunday. And as a little boy, he said he put his ear to the door and all he could hear was his father sobbing. When was the last time we did that? Maybe never. And so it exposes us and keeps us from carelessness. Carelessness. Yes. So the first answer from God is how do you avoid this? How do you strive to enter that rest and not fall by the same sort of disobedience? We engage in the word of God. Now, this is where the law comes in a little bit. Uh, this is why reading your Bible every day is a really good, good idea. Because if you're not reading God's word, it's not going to do its surgical work. It's not going to be able to do that which it's, it's purpose to do. And as a believer, it is living and active. It, it does its work. I mean, before you're a Christian, it's, it's not living and active at all. It's, it's dead and dormant. Uh, but the moment that you come, become a believer and the eyes of your heart are opened, uh, you're able to actually, God's word will do its work on you. And it does discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't like this because it harms my confidence. You're right. I hope it does at least disarm our self-confidence. Because then the author of Hebrews turns and says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, that's the response. So the first thing that God gives us is his word. But then when we feel naked and exposed, what happens? We draw near, for we have a great high priest. Now the people of reading this, when it was originally written, they would have had priests around. There would have been a priest working in the temple. This is before 70 AD when Titus's armies destroyed it. Um, incidentally, I mentioned this morning, just as a footnote, Herod's improvement of the temple ended in 64 AD so it was only the way that it was for six years uh, after it took over 70 years to improve so things are fleeting uh, but they would have known what it was to have a priest and what does a priest do anybody what, what do the priests in the temple do sacrifices now why in the world would they need to do sacrifices what a mess Anybody? To take away the sin, to deal with sin, right? To deal with sin. That's what priests do. They, they deal with sin. Now, there are no more priests like that since the destruction of the temple. And why you call us priests is because it's an English version of the word presbyter, which means elder. Um, and so someone asked me if it was more appropriate to call me elderly. 
uh, I thought, well, maybe. Theologically speaking, yes. But here, the author is saying, we have a great high priest. You no longer need that priest. A, a priest is also a mediator between a human being and God, right? So whether you were Jewish or whether you were Greek or Roman, you know, you would, you would have someone do that on your behalf. Right? You didn't do the sacrifice yourself, but specially designated people who served as mediators between human beings and God or a human being and the gods, they did that. But no, the author of Hebrews is saying we have a great high priest who is the once, and all, off, once for all offering for sin, which is you know, one of the great little words that we use in our communion service is that, is that we say uh, a one, one sacrifice for sin, who made there? Not here, but there. And where's the there? On a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Who made there? Right, we look to that. That's the assurance for our sins. And so he's our great high priest. But he's not just this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the image of the hev uh, holy of holies, of going through the veil that has been rent in two, holding the confession of him who has gone before us. But we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Right? This is a great difference uh, between Christianity and really any other world religion or philosophy for that matter, is that we actually believe that Jesus was a human being. Now defying mathematical law, he's 100% God and 100% man, but he knows what it means to be tempted, tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. You know what that means? I mean, do you feel that in your life, the tug of war between doing what you know you ought to do and doing the thing that you ought not to do? And what, what happens? Sometimes you have victory. But more often than not, what happens? You fail. You capitulate. You, you give up. Which means that if Jesus never succumbed to sin, it means his struggle with temptation was greater than anything that you and I have ever experienced. Why? Because he never let in. Right, he held firm. He didn't move. So not only do we have one that's not, who's able to sympathize, but actually has experienced temptation on a level that you and I have never experienced. The struggle that he had with temptation is miles and miles beyond anything that you and I have ever struggled with. So he knows well the battle that wages within our hearts, and yet he did not give in. He was without sin. And so after the word of God has done surgery on our heart and we've been laid bare, we with confidence draw near to the throne of judgment, grace, throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The answer is not try harder. The answer is not the mediation of another human being. The answer is to go before the throne of grace where we find mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our help in time of need. This is incredibly personal language that the author's using. And it's, I think it's still hard in our day and age 
even though we're kind of burnt over when it comes to Christianity, I still think it's hard for people to deal with personal language when it deals with God. The whole notion of having a personal relationship with God and what does that mean? Well, that's what Hebrews is telling us, is this personal relationship with God and what does it mean to walk with God as you sojourn toward heaven? It means dwelling within the word, which often will do a surgical work in your life, but when you find yourself on the brink of failing and even maybe even turning away from the Christian faith, you turn to the throne of grace. You draw near to him. Now, this is, um, this is how personal relationships work. I mean, if you're a husband or your wife or your roommate or a close friend, if, if they were to come to you and start speaking with you and you were to put your fingers in your ears, how would that look? Well, it would look ridiculous and it would be incredibly rude. But when a friend or a loved one starts speaking to you, what do you do? Now, there are times where I want to put the plugs in. I get it. But when they start speaking to you, what do you, you listen. And you not only listen, but you, you actually begin to, to contemplate and wrestle with what it is that they're saying. You, it's as if you almost, you know, if someone comes to you with a problem and you're a really good friend, don't you enter into the problem with them? You're, you're not just a passive listener, but all of a sudden you're, you're getting into the pigsty with them. You're getting dirty uh, with them. And then out of that, as you walk with them through that issue, whatever it may be, and as you talk with, with one another, uh, they've come to you because they know that you're someone who's going to listen and is going to administer grace and mercy uh, and maybe even some wisdom. In the same way, what kind of personal relationship with God would we have if we just did this? If we stopped up our ears? We wouldn't have any relationship with him. It simply wouldn't exist. Now, obviously, the, the, the equivalent of stopping up our ears spiritually is to close our Bibles and to put them aside. No, I'm not saying that you have to get out your Greek New Testaments and go through. Reading plans are all well and good. Uh, but, you know, when you are languishing, you know, just opening up the Bible this week and you're struggling and read this. Let us with then confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's it. God speak, and sometimes that's enough, isn't it? Sometimes my prayers to God are my favorite prayer in the entire Bible. Peter's walking on the water, sees the winds and the waves, and begins to sink, and he prays, Lord, save me. It's a good one. It's a biblical prayer. Sometimes it's just, Lord, save me. And so the two answers that we have from God when it comes to striving to enter the rest, that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, we understand that that's not just an individual pursuit, but all of us going together, we're all going to end up at the same place. You don't have an isolated cell when you get to heaven. I don't know if you knew that. You're actually going to be living in community with lots and lots and lots of people. 
So we're doing it together, but God gives us two answers. The first one he gives us is his word, which speaks to us and opens our eyes to our great need of him because we're all prone to walk in darkness. And then two, drawing near with faith, which is really prayer, right? Going to the throne of grace and praying to him and pouring your heart out to him, knowing that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He expects you to be weak. In fact, I think that that's a hallmark of a Christian, to actually be willing to admit that you're weak. So this morning, I, I would probably leave us with two questions. The first is, do you know of somebody in your life who is falling away or has fallen away from the Christian faith? that has developed an unbelieving heart and has been led to fall away from the living God? How might God use you to speak a word of hope into their lives? And secondly, what about you? Are you feeling this way? Do you feel like that you're about to lose your grip on it all and, and lose it all? Are you ready to give up striving to enter that rest? Well, that's you. Draw near to the throne of grace and receive the mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Questions, comments, concerns? For me personally, was reading Paul's letter to Timothy, you know, acknowledging that he was the chief of sinners, and I think that for me that was a reality that, that I, you know, cling to to this day. Right. It helps me be honest. Most of us do think that about you, David. Who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. You know, and I don't know. Well, I do know where it gets into Christianity, but this idea that that you you have to be a swan in Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that you need to reveal all of your lives to all people. You know, some people can be floodlights, and you're just sort of like, whoa. You know, that that's that's a lot. So I'm not saying that. Uh, but it's there's a propensity in the church to feel like you can't tell anybody that you're struggling and weak when in fact all of us are struggling and weak. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And, and there's also sometimes, especially, look, y'all are a really high-functioning congregation. I mean, y'all have, by worldly standards, have got it completely and totally all together. And sometimes that begins to bleed into our spiritual conversations where we feel like we have to be that spiritually speaking as well. Rather than but I think that most of us would be more willing to tell someone I'm failing at work than I'm failing in my faith. When in fact, what Hebrews is telling us is if you start to feel it, you should reach out to someone. And if you're starting to see it in their lives, you ought to reach out to them. I mean, this is where I think the Roman Catholics have an edge on us with confession. Um, but... Um, but you can confess to one another and, um, and, and do an inventory in your own lives often. Okay? An expectation that something's going to happen? Yeah, that God will do something. That's what you mean. 
Yeah, so there's an expectation that when you do get to the throne of grace or when you do reach out to someone in that moment that God is actually going to meet you there and be present because it's not your job and my job to get people right with God. I mean, I always think it's funny when someone says, well, I got converted by so-and-so. I got converted by Bill Jones. No, you didn't. I mean, God may have used Bill Jones, but, 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 uh, but God converted you. God drew you to faith. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.